Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, filmmaker AJ Wedding, flipping through my old call sheets looking for interesting guests in the film and TV industry. Today is an amazing day because you get to speak with, and I get to speak with, actually, you don't get to do anything but listen, right? Uh, I get to speak with the one and the only Dave Asling. Uh, Dave uh, is an incredible miniature maker, filmmaker, visual effects person. He's been involved in The Mandalorian. He's been involved in iRobot, Elysium. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get through um, at least a few of the projects you've, I mean, you've been involved in so many films and TV shows through your career. Yeah, it's it's been a long and storied career. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, Yeah, no, and, and we met, God, how many years ago was it? Like five years, five years actually ago? not counting the pandemic. So six, <laughs> oh, um, yes. I guess it's six years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Dave was at new deal studios around the same time that I was, and, and Dave was involved in developing a film that we hope we still get to do one of these days. It would be lovely to do. Um, <laughs> I still have all the designs in the computer, which is, you know, fund us. That's all we need. Just money. Yes. Really. That's all there, it takes. Write us a check. We're, we're ready to go. Um, so, so Dave, uh, I know a little bit about your history, but I don't know a lot about how you got started. So maybe what, what first drove you toward the film industry? Oh, well, that's, that's easy. I never actually thought I would be in the film industry because I grew up in, in Canada in a very remote part of Ontario called the snow belt where, you know, you're usually, um, kind of stuck at home for three or four months of the year just because of the fact that it is the snow belt and there's lots of snow and you don't really go anywhere. So I spent a lot of time building models from scratch as a kid. And all of those were from me watching um, the Thunderbirds and Rocketship XL7 uh, when I was a kid and uh, Stingray. I love those shows growing up. And that's where I first went, wow, that is, that is really cool. I love the way that looks. And I was like four. But like then I was like, oh, that's great. I want to build that. You know, I want to try to build that. And, you know, the next thing you know, you've got like sparklers and gasoline and you're playing with your model cars and blowing them up. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I never actually thought I would get into film. I, I figured, well, this is happening in, you know, some far away warm place and not something that's happening in Canada. So I actually planned to be an architect. And I got into um, architectural design early on in high school. I took architectural design as soon as it was offered as a a credit course. Took that through to uh, graduating, went into college for architectural design, got out into the world, um, working at, uh, start off, you know, working at like a a firm in Toronto. And the first thing they have the, the, the newbies do is you guys build the study models. I thought, well, this is cool. I love building models anyway. I built models as a kid and, you know, so this will be fun. Um, but then I found out that you don't actually get to design your own buildings for years and years and years <laughs> and years. And But I also found out that there were companies that just built architectural models. And I thought, well, this is great. I get to build models and get paid for it and use my education. So it's perfect. Great. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I kind of left that architectural firm and just went to companies that built architectural models. And... The guys who work at architectural models also did film models. And there were a couple of small visual effects companies in Toronto that were just kind of starting out. And 
I got a call one day from one of the guys who worked at the architectural shop saying, hey, we're doing this thing. It's a rush job over the weekend. Can you come down and help out? I was like, sure, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and I went over and they were building these really cool props and and doing some some miniature stuff. And I was I was stunned because I honestly didn't realize that there was a visual effects company or industry happening in Canada at all. I hadn't looked into it because I just thought it's never gonna happen. And here was this little company that was, you know, basically in a in a very small garage space doing miniatures, doing doing matte paintings. They had their own little motion control system that they built from scratch. And I loved it. And I literally quit my job at the architectural place and went to work at this place for free just to say, like, <laughs> I'm keen, I'm eager, let me in the door. And I did that for a while and got in the door, um, worked my way up to being um, the, you know, a supervisor on shows and then shop supervisor. And then I was on the board of the directors of the company and then went off and did my own thing. <laughs> well, before we get to uh, you crossing the border, uh, what, what, what kind of projects were you working on back then in those days? Oh, well, we were doing a lot of movie of the week stuff. And the movie of the week stuff I actually really enjoyed because they usually had enough money to do one thing. <laughs> so it wasn't like we've got to build, you know, like 20 different models and you've got, you know, three weeks to do it. It's like, We've got money to do one model and you've got three weeks to do it, which was much, much more fun because you could really, you know, finesse things. Um, so we were doing, um, you know, like a lot of movie of the week stuff, some television series stuff. The occasional feature would roll into Toronto, but not that many back then. Uh, we were doing um, shows like um, Stargate and Earth Final Conflict. Mm. So when they were doing visual effects, it was a real sort of hard mix and hard division between you're doing 2D digital stuff or you're doing miniatures. There wasn't 3D animation happening at the time. Um, so anything that was, was you know, that needed that realism or dimensionality, it just defaulted to doing miniatures. So yeah, we were doing a lot of practical miniature work. We were doing a lot of build stuff and blow it up um, <laughs> and just a lot of fun projects. And the great thing about that particular time in my life was that literally, Everybody who was in the industry was local and none of us had come up through a studio system of any kind. None of us had the wealth of knowledge that you would have working in London or Los Angeles where you have these established visual effects companies who've been in business for decades and have created techniques and refined them and, and can pass that information on. We didn't have that. So every single job we took on was this brand new challenge that none of us had ever done before. And it was all of us trying to come together and, and figure out the best way to solve these problems. So you really just had to dive deep into every single visual effects problem that came along because literally every single one of them was something that had never been done before for us. Mm, that's really interesting. I like the idea of that being a better way, especially for everyone who was there because you all now have these amazing skills Oh yeah, from that. Yeah, exactly. And now I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's better. It was certainly more expensive because oh, it was sure. a lot of trial and error. You know, we had to figure out what, you know, how are we going to mold this? How are we going to cast it? What's the best material? How are we doing this pyro, you know? Um, because we're working with guys who blew stuff up for real, full scale, but they hadn't done miniatures. So you're doing a lot of R&D and testing and um, there was a lot more experimentation certainly, but also because you're developing these techniques yourself, 
you you kind of feel like, well, this is the way this needs to be solved because this is the only way we know how to do it. Um, and you would make that work. And I'm not saying it was the, you know, there weren't better ways to do it, but but we definitely learned and retained that knowledge, I think, in a, in a bigger way than if you're, you know, if you've got a guy who's sort of leaning over your shoulder going, oh, well, here's how I did it back at NOM kind of thing. Right. Um, so well, you become a problem solver, and so then eventually, exactly. no problem matters. You can solve any problem, and that's it. You you don't specialize. You become this generalist who who isn't afraid to dip into anything, and that's where I'm at really through my entire career. Was there was never a point where I said, "Well, this is the only thing I'm going to do," you know, where I'm I'm just going to build miniatures or I'm just going to do this one thing, because every problem had to have some sort of a solution that you had to come to, and so every job that came through was this new thing and and all of these new skills that we were teaching ourselves we could apply to so many different types of projects afterwards and also because we were such a small group it wasn't just you know you build a model and you load the camera and you like everybody did everything so you were rigging the model you were setting the green screens you were loading the mitchell you were running the camera you were programming the motion control like we all learned everything we needed to know to be on a visual effects stage because there wasn't a specialized group of people who did just that one thing we were such a small tight group that you all had to do everything so that to me was was the best education was was okay you know thanks for building the model now we've got to go shoot it here's how the mitchell works mm. here's how motion control works here's how you know once you see that motion control rig you're like well okay now we've got this new shot and the rig doesn't do that. Okay, now we've got to build a new component for the rig to allow us to do this new shot. And you're you're building the motion control equipment to shoot the miniature that you were building a week ago. So it was just a really great learning experience, and it was the right age for me to do it too. I was I was you know very young and keen, and and just soaking everything in at that time. Sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing. I mean anybody who knows anything about filmmaking. You're basically solving problems. That that that's it. You know, it's just every day solve a problem, solve a thousand problems really. Um, so you know, I feel like whenever you would go into a project now, you must be super confident because of all of your past of being able to do those things. Yeah. Well, for me, it's always been about being able to visualize the the solution, um, and that's part of the problem solving that I really love, and that's actually part of bidding a job that I love because. Even if I don't land the job, in my mind, I go through all the stages of building that job and solving all the problems that go with building that job. So even building it, or bidding it, I should say, is a fun process for me because I get to work through the problem-solving part, which is the thing I love the most right next to painting something, is, is actually just figuring out all the ways this thing can go wrong and making sure it doesn't. Um, so yeah, that that idea of, well, I can take on anything, I don't know if I would say that. What I would say is that I have a very comfortable level of confidence with every job I've been approached with so far, but there are definitely jobs where someone will come to me and I will say, you know what, that is very specialized and that's not something that we do. Like I, I now that I'm down here in LA, I get approached for creature stuff periodically. And I would love to be able to say we can do that. But that's not our world. That's not something that I've had the experience with in the past that people here in LA 
have dedicated their entire careers to that one thing. And they are going to, you know, do that so, so much better than me and so much more economically than I could because I would have to teach myself everything to do that. <laughs> so there are, there are jobs that I still say, yeah, you know what? No, that's that's not for me. That's for Rick Lazzarini or that's for somebody else. That's that's not my world. So so you worked there for how many years? I have to think back on that one. I think my first film job was it's a TV series called Kung Fu yes. with David Carradine um, doing doing props for them. Um, and I actually, I actually wasn't working for production. I was I was working at an architectural company at the time because now, you know, like I started with the architectural stuff, but then the architectural guy I was working for started taking on side jobs doing prop stuff. I'm like, well, this is really cool. <laughs> so I was doing props out of his company um, before I was on my own. Um, so yeah, that was the first thing I first film job I did would have been in like 80, 88 or 89, I think. And then when did you open your own shop? Well, the weird thing about the way the visual effects company that I worked for in Toronto was, was that nobody was an employee. We were all freelance. And, you know, they're definitely like looking back on it, that was pretty hinky. You know, that, that wasn't necessarily legal the way the owner was running it, but he didn't have to pay a lot of different taxes that he would have had to pay on, you know, employees and he didn't have to pay benefits and he didn't have to. I mean, I don't think he even had workers' compensation looking back on it. When I got my actual, like, here's my space and this is my company, um, that would have been like the early 2000s, I think, when I actually stepped away from that visual effects company and went out on my own and, and started looking at other other places to do business with. Because, I mean, they were a great place to work with, and I worked with them for probably a decade doing visual effects with them. Um, but they were, they were going in a digital direction that I wasn't necessarily interested in going. And a lot, the, the, the work that we were doing in miniatures with them was essentially competing directly with the direction they wanted to take the company of getting into doing 3D animation and and more digital post-production stuff. So we were in effect competing with other branches of the company that the that the, the owner of the company wanted to further wanted to further. Yeah. yeah. So so and I totally get that. I mean, you know, it was the right choice. It was at the time, um, you know, it was the right choice for him to make at that time to get into going more digital because that that was something that he had a lot more um, a lot more control over um, and you know it was it was you know for television shows and television budgets and the kind of effects work they were doing it was hard to rationalize the kind of work we were doing yeah I was I was talking to um, Fawn Davis actually he was saying that at ILM it was kind of similar they they closed down the model shop because it was uh, it was stopping them from doing more digital work because they would say, well, we can make, we can make that as a model. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, we augmented a lot of stuff that the digital departments were doing. Um, and it's I'm sure Fawn ran into the same thing. It's like, well, we don't want to build this as a miniature, but it'd be great if you could make some textures for us. Right. So we did do, you know, quite a bit of work that way as well. Like we ended up uh, doing a lot of work on... Um, Santa Claus 2 for Disney, where the work, they were building digital versions of Santa's village, but we actually created the physical versions and then, you know, did like an early version of photogrammetry where we just shot the crap out of them with still images and texture mapped all that stuff onto their simple architecture. So um, it wasn't 
as fun for me because we weren't getting to build fully realized miniatures that were going to be shot on screen. It was, well, we need to have, you know, this wall texture and this window texture and this doorway and what's the snow going to look like. And so we would do these little elements essentially that would then get shot and handed off to the digital department to map onto something that actually ends up on screen. Sure, sure. So so you started your own shop and you focused mainly on the miniatures? On the miniatures, yeah. And before I left, I had a talk with the fellow who ran the company and he offered me a position doing 3D modeling because that was something they were getting into and it seemed like a natural thing for me to do. And I was like, nope, you know, I'm going to stick with miniatures. And I regretted that for a while uh, <laughs> because miniatures definitely went through a bit of a dry spell in the film industry. Digital became the the you know latest shiny object and <laughs> every problem became something you solved with a digital solution. Uh, and it took a while for things to swing back around, but we stuck it out. We, we focused just on miniatures and specialty props. Um, and we did a lot of miniature work off the top. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's slowly sort of to transition over. We did probably, you know, 85 or 90% of our year was visual effects miniatures and 10% was props. Hmm. And it slowly went through this transition to where it became 90% of our year was specialty props. And like once or twice a year, maybe you would do a visual effects miniature. Oh, wow. And now it's, it's the pendulum swung back the other way. And we're probably in a good mix right now. The last couple of years, it's been once again, like 90% of our work has been visual effects miniatures. But now it's, it's kind of balancing. We're finding a good point right now. We're probably like, you know, 75% of our year is visual effects miniatures and 25% is specialty props. It seems like if you're going to blow something up, you're, you're always better to do that as a miniature um, than in CG because of the chaotic nature of blowing something up. It just never looks right digitally. There's, there's always that, that element of randomness um, that I love with doing miniature pyro or miniature physical effects. We actually do a lot more physical effects miniatures than pyro miniatures. Mm. The difference being, you know, usually what, we're, what we end up doing, or not usually, but a lot of the time what we end up doing is is destroying something without blowing it up. So you're knocking it or crumbling it or crushing it or doing something like that. Pyro is great and I love pyro, but a lot of the time it's also obscuring the work that you've put into the thing because <laughs> sure. you've got this suddenly this big ball of fire and debris flying everywhere. Um, and a lot of the stuff we've done has been more uh, sort of in-camera destruction where you're, you're, like I said, you're knocking something down or you're crushing it and you have to really sort of finesse the physics to make that thing fall right in camera or to act right in camera um, in a way that you don't necessarily have to worry quite so much about when you're when you're hitting it with a fireball. So like for iRobot, when we did that, um, we didn't actually have a pyrotechnician on that film. Everything that we did, we did mechanically with rigs on set. So when we were um, destroying the landing house, we spent months designing the 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 stuff that's sort of behind the, the the curtain that was holding all the model parts up so you know how how do these walls get destroyed you've got a you know a 70 foot robot running through this house what's that look like <laughs> well you know like how is a how is a wall going to get crushed or destroyed when it's not pyro how's that wood going to react how's that structure going to change in camera and fully exposed to the lens. You're not hiding it with, with pyro or dust or debris. You're, you're saying, here's this thing that's happening and it's charging right at camera. 
and it's got to look real and we can't disguise it. So you had to really think about how things would react in the real world at full scale and then go, okay, now we're doing this quarter scale and you know what are our materials going to be and how are we going to make all these interactions happen and control it all and then do it again. For, for that movie, we had built you know full-scale versions of the outside of the landing house um, that had to get knocked over and that was one six scale and then we did all these one quarter scale interior miniatures of you know stairways and hallways and and exteriors of roofs and corridors and all these things that the robot had to smash and we actually built a robot to smash all that stuff which was fun too <laughs> so we had this this 800 pound robot that we made um, and when I say robot, that's just what he was on screen. He was a puppet. Um, he had a, a like I think a 16 foot arm span, um, and he was a rod puppet that we made using uh, box steel and uh, uh, plexi or not plexiglass, but uh, polycarbonate um, and ren shape, and basically made this giant uh, you know rod puppet that we attached to a a car turntable, and then put on a dolly that we could roll through set and. You know, we had puppeteers basically controlling his arms that we'd put big counterbalance weights on so that we could use the robot to actually smash the models as we're filming. So, you know, when you see stuff get smashed on camera, that really is the robot, you know, smashing his arm through the house. Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot of people that are not as sort of savvy to how films are made just assume everything's digital now, you know, and, and they don't realize how much of that's actually physically being done. Uh, and, and whenever it looks real, it probably was real. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, I'm, I've always been of the mind that it's whatever tool is in the bag that solves the problem the most efficiently at the time. Um, I've never been sort of stuck with blinders. I think because I came from that background of having to solve all these different problems, you knew there was more than one way to do it. So I've never said, to a client, well, this is, you know, this is a miniature solution. You know, this is how you're going to do it. If they come to me with a problem and the best way to solve that problem is a digital solution, then I'm going to steer them that way. Yeah. I, I feel like most people, at least that I've met in the film industry, the goal is the shot. The goal is to make it, you know, the fact that we get paid to do it is like, yeah. well, great. I don't care. I, I want the shot to be exactly. Best. Yeah. And it does get to be a problem because you have a lot fewer um, production visual effects supervisors now and a lot more facility visual effects supervisors. And that's where you start to run into a little bit of a conflict where you don't necessarily want to look outside of the tool bag that you own. Yeah, you and I were talking earlier about virtual production and how you know virtual volumes are really amazing. And when you hear all of the positives about them and you go, wow, that's really an amazing tool but it doesn't solve every problem. It's a tool just like everything else. Yeah. And, and kind of the same way, like if I have somebody come in and they say, well, I want to do this particular kind of shot. If it's going to be better as a green screen, I'm going to tell them that, you know, yeah. or maybe you shouldn't be here. You just go out in the desert and get that, you know, whatever. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I can totally see how that happens, especially with, you know, visual effects houses closing all the time. Yeah. Um, visual effects, um, Visual effects facilities have often had a, I think the expression is stealing from Peter to pay Paul kind of mentality where they're often taking the, the first down payment from their latest job to finish paying for their last job. And they're always running in that cycle of, of needing the next job to pay for the last one. And, 
and they get caught out. And that that has been the problem over and over and over again with with facilities for as long as I can remember. Has it just come down to like bidding, like they're underbidding to get the gig, or that's certainly I'm 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 sure that is a factor. I am absolutely sure that is a big factor where. You know, you've you're you're trying to bid against all these other facilities, and each person trying to get you know a few dollars less than that guy, or or you know perhaps relocate to a different tax credit zone. I mean, tax credits obviously have a big impact in the visual effects industry as well. Honestly, because what we do is so often cutting edge, is so often you know you're trying to create the latest spectacle and nobody was seen this thing on screen and this is what the director wants. He has his vision of this new shot that nobody's seen or this new way of looking at, at visual effects that nobody's done. And there's a lot of R&D involved in that stuff. And I think those kind of costs often don't get factored into a bid where you're trying to create this you know, latest, greatest impression or somebody's got this new software for doing this new uh, new fur render and it looks fabulous but our artists have never used it but that's what we're going to use on the show because this is the latest greatest shiny software and there's this learning curve that happens and all these costs get eaten up in that um so i think it's a, a lot of different factors i think it's i think it's definitely um trying to underbid um i think it's definitely uh, a case of trying to create that new visual spectacle and you know, there's just a lot of, of development that's needed for those kind of things. Like Avatar didn't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot of work that went into creating that movie that's built on the shoulders of, you know, a dozen movies that came before it. You came to L.A. in what, 2016? Uh, no, it was 20, 2013. I actually sort of officially landed here. Dang, I'm getting old. I know, right? <laughs> um, my, my wife and I met on um, iRobot. Um, she was the visual effects accountant for 20th Century Fox on that project. And my company at that time was based in Toronto. And um, our very first discussion was uh, uh, funny, fighting over money. Um, <laughs> because uh, there, there had been a, a, a shortfall that happened on the movie. Um, there was a, a, an overall visual effects vendor in Canada based in Vancouver. And the studio had awarded my company the contract of building the miniatures, but because they already had this contract for digital work with this other company, they wanted to fund the money through that company to me. So it would, it would go to this other Canadian company and then that Canadian company would, would uh, divest down to me, down to our company. And unfortunately, that other company was running into that stealing from Peter to pay Paul problem. <laughs> and was taking the money that was supposed to go to my company to pay for their visual effects shots. Ugh. And so I ended up having to have this long discussion with John Kilkenny, who was the uh, executive vice president of visual effects at the time. It was explaining to John, look, here's the situation. Here's all of our expenses that we've had to date. Here's where all the money is gone. Here's this shortfall. We're getting boned here by this other company. And I know this isn't your fault, but can you help us out? And John, um, was incredible about it. He saw exactly what the situation was, um, and he made it right. Uh, and it, you know, it saved me. It saved my company because we were going to have this huge shortfall on our end because we had done, we had, we had fulfilled our contract, but we weren't getting paid by this, you know, through this other sure, vendor. They had sure. taken the money for their own shots that they wanted to finish. 
anyway, John came through. So I flew down for the cast and crew screening to thank him personally for what he'd done because it was such an amazing stand-up thing to me. Uh, and that's where I met my wife was at this screening, uh, met her in person. Oh, so sure. um, yeah. Um, and at that point I thought, well, you know, if this is going to work, I can't be, you know, several time zones over. So <laughs> I, um, I moved my operation to Vancouver. Um, and Vancouver was a great place to be based because it was doing a ton of work. Um, not compared to LA, certainly. I mean, you know, there was a lot of talk at the time about runaway production, but comparatively, you know, Vancouver was doing like three or four features a year. You know, I mean, it was not a lot of, so of mostly work. TV up there. Yeah. Ton of TV, yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of, um, uh, you know, fairly well-budgeted science fiction television. Vancouver was a hotbed of, of sci-fi TV. And that was great for me because that's when we transitioned into mainly doing prop work. Right. You know, once you established a a relationship with, with the different prop masters in town, you know, the first job we did um, was with a show called Smallville. And the prop master on Smallville was friends with the prop master on this other show. And he said, hey, you should try this new guy. And it just kind of went like, and he told two friends and he told two friends and he went. And and yeah, props became what we were doing. Uh, not exclusively, but but largely. Right. What, what would you say was your most uh, challenging gig in Vancouver? Ooh. Well, the thing about props and science fiction props is it's always it's it's always something that you can't just go out and rent or find on the shelf. But they're still working in that television time frame of, well, we can find this on the shelf and just rent it. Um, so everything was fast turnaround. It was always, um, you know, coming to you on a Thursday for something that shot on a Tuesday. Um, that was that was just the way it was. So it was this this revolving door of business. I was going to say, when, when you deliver on that speed, that's why you're getting... The business because they're like oh you can trust him he can get it done yeah exactly and it was it was definitely that like we we had a really good working relationship with the prop masters in vancouver and and i really enjoyed that aspect of it because they they brought the most interesting problems like because it's all this science fiction television stuff and some feature stuff as well um it was it was these really cool unique problems and it was a new problem all the time so it was like just new design work and new problem solving just constantly that I really enjoyed. And it was, that was through a prop master named Dean Barker, who I had met on, I believe, I'd met him through the prop master. I met him through Terry Weaver, who was prop master on Defying Gravity. And they were good buddies. And it's again, that thing of, well, you know, here's this guy you should try out. So Dean was the, the local prop master on Elysium. And Weta had been hired to create all of the props and body armor and sort of tactical suits for the movie. And they had been working on it for 10 or 11 months down at Weta in New Zealand. Um, and they came up to Vancouver to film the movie and the director added a character because he felt that that our, our main big bad guy needed another subordinate. And he wasn't, there was nothing for him. There was no costume, there was nothing. So. I got a call from from Dean saying, "Hey, you know, we need body armor for this guy, and you know, there's nothing." So uh, I went down to the studio and I saw what Weta had built, and um, you know, took a lot of pictures of the work that they had done. Went back to the shop, and basically designed an armored suit 
that looked like it came from the same factory, but it was a couple of generations older because this guy's a subordinate and he's like a flunky and he doesn't get the new high-tech gear. He gets the old gear. So spent literally an afternoon designing the suit, sent it back to the prop master, had him say, yeah, that's it, go, and then had to turn around that suit. So we turned around five of these, these you know body armor sets. It was like 18 days or something like that to turn around these suits. And they were, because we didn't see the script and didn't know the shots, I designed everything so you could put the camera like an inch away from it. <laughs> so every piece of armor had a different serial number on it and the company logo engraved into it. And, and like we went all out because we didn't know what the shots were going to be. So we had the two hero suits and then three rubber fighting suits, um, stunt suits. Um, and then after that, it was like, oh, and we need, you know, we need a helmet for the space pilot and we need holsters for the cops and we need guns and, and all this stuff just started rolling in, but it was still, and we need it tomorrow. Um, and then the other one that I really enjoyed was, uh, there was a job for, for um, Smallville and they were getting into um, the uh, sort of expanded universe ID, even though it wasn't, it wasn't called the expanded universe back then, but, but it was that idea of we're gonna bring more heroes into the Smallville world. And so they were doing, I guess, uh, like a League of Justice thing and they needed Hawkman. And they'd had a Hawkman suit made and uh, the director was really, really unhappy with the look of the, uh, the costume that they got. He liked aspects of it, but he didn't like the helmet and he didn't like the chest medallion and things like that. So I got a call on a Thursday for this thing that had to shoot the following Wednesday. Um, so Thursday, I'm like going like crazy through Silver Age Hawkman comics and looking at the design of that helmet and then drawing up our own version of that, sending it off to the prop master, getting it approved, having the actor sent over to our shop on the Friday, making a life cast of his head, and then sculpting the new uh, helmet out of clay over the weekend, making the molds, pouring it, finishing it, and then having it ready to go to set on like the Wednesday morning. Yeah, it does look pretty awesome. I remember you, cause you have it in your office. I do, yeah, yeah. It's really, uh, really awesome. Um, I wanna jump forward a little bit to, um, to talk about the Mandalorian because I think, um, you know, obviously with me sort of getting into virtual production, that was a huge, um, a huge moment. And when you were telling me about working on it, um, it just kind of blew my mind. And, you know, it's one of those things again, where, you know, you assume everything is digital that you see on TV yeah. and, uh, and, and yet you go, but it looks so real. Like, how is that possible? Yeah. And, and yet again, uh, this is a situation where model making becomes very, very important. And in fact, um, some of those scenes, um, in the Mandalorian, uh, they were actually miniatures that you that you created and that were scanned and then put in. Exactly, yeah. I'm I am a huge fan of the use of virtual production in all the ways that I think it's being interpreted now. There are different ways of looking at virtual production. One is the idea of the 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 volume, the LED screen being used to create uh, expanded sets or or environments, whether they're inside or outside. Um, but the other is just the idea of using digital technology as a tool to help you um, plan out your your show in a virtual way, where you you know before you start building physical sets, you know do them digitally. Take that that I don't even know the name of the digital camera that allows you to find your position in three D space. 
But taking that tool and looking around that digital world in the computer and, or you know on screen and going, yeah, this is this is where we're going to lay the dolly track, and here's where we're going to build this this big wall. But we're looking at it virtually right now. We're looking at it in a you know a, in a sort of simulated way. When I saw it first on the Mandalorian, um, I knew immediately that this was something that was number one groundbreaking and and going to be the way things happen in the future. But number two, that it was going to be something that would help me personally and our company. Because one of the, the big uh, stumbling blocks in the histor historically to using miniatures has been the cost of photography. Um, you know, we can, we can build a miniature and do it very economically, but we don't have control over the costs of, you know, everything you need to film that renting the studio and hiring that crew and getting the camera and lighting and you know grip equipment and all that stuff like all of those ancillary costs or all of those not even ancillary all of those costs that are are necessary to capturing a miniature on film are beyond my control so no matter how well we build that miniature how how tight to a budget we can make it we still have this big expense of filming it after that and if we can build that same beautiful miniature and then run it through 3D scanning and photogrammetry and get it into a pipeline that facility visual effects supervisors are comfortable with. Get it onto their screen, get it, make it an asset like any other digital asset that they would normally work with. That makes what we do a lot more appealing and a lot more inviting and a lot more economical. So with The Mandalorian, um, I actually didn't know I was working on The Mandalorian when I got the call. <laughs> Um, I just was asked if I would be interested in working on this new show and, you know, they think that, you know, there's, there's a real solid place for miniatures in this, this show that they're working on and would I mind coming down for a meeting? And of course, like, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody, you know, about the project they want to do. So I went down and it's this nondescript building down in, in the marina. And uh, I walk in and, and, you know, there's there's nobody there. It's kind of empty. It's early, you know, the early stages. They're, they're kind of setting up. They were just finishing. Uh, they were sharing space with Jon Favreau and the Lion King. I knew that. So he was kind of wrapping things up on the Lion King at the time. So I knew his offices were there. And I knew because there's Lion King stuff scattered around. Um, and then we go into, you know, they lead me into an office. And I sit down. I'm like, huh, that looks like Luke's lightsaber sitting on the desk beside me. <laughs> huh, that's a speeder bike on the wall over there in that picture. And I'm looking around and I'm like, holy crap, this is a Star Wars project. Like no one had told me that that's what we were going to be do doing. <laughs> so I'm trying to contain myself because that's a bucket list thing for me. I, you know, one of the big influences in my career had been the, the, the original trilogy, the, the amazing miniature work done on, on, you know, A New Hope and, and the subsequent movies. We, we, talked about what they wanted to do and of course I'd signed NDAs and everything and they said like you, you can't tell anybody about you know what we're about to show you and they showed me footage of the Mandalorian in a room and it was on a you know a good size screen like probably like a 60 inch screen or something and as I'm looking at the Mandalorian and I'm, I'm looking I'm like okay he's in a room and then all of a sudden the wall that the Mandalorian is looking at shifts because I'm looking sort of over his shoulder towards an open window and I can see the the forest outside the window reflected on his armor coming through that open window. I can see, you know, like an environment out there and kids playing or whatever. 
And then that view shifts and the window moves over like a foot and drops down, you know, 10 inches. I'm like, wait a minute. And he's still getting all this information reflected on him and the camera's moving and it looks like he's in this room. And I went, this is very cool. What am I looking at? And say, well, this is this thing we're, we're looking to use. It's, you know, it's virtual production and we have this, you know, thing we want to try doing miniatures with. I'm like, absolutely. This looks very cool. Like, let's, let's get in on this. The thing we spent the most time on was um, this um, uh, a common house. It was called in the script. It was it was a, a giant sort of uh, Native American looking hut, and it was all timbers and and arched like ceilings. The bar, and, where they the bar yeah, 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 exactly. So the first time you meet Cara uh, uh, Dune's character was in this place. We built the the miniature that became that environment. Um, and that was that was a really fun build because you know it was it was again one of these situations where they knew what they wanted, but there was a lot going on with that production, like a lot of a lot of things to take care of, and they honestly, you know, they they wanted to do this as a miniature, um, but no one had sort of designed it out that way, and so. The, a lot of the the actual look of that space was left to us. We got some some 3D models that were sort of very basic, like here's the overall size of it, and here's the overall height of it, and here's sort of some some watercolor uh, renderings of what we think it should look like, but but no hard drawings of any kind. And honestly, that's usually the way it is anyway. I just thought it would be different for Star Wars that they would have like here's like these perfect renderings that you have exactly. to follow. It's like no, here's yeah. here's this idea go do this, you know, go like make something that looks sort of like this idea I'm trying to get to you. That was, that was great too, because the, the aesthetic of that space was, was communicated in, in very sort of broad terms by the production designer, um, without any sort of hard and fast, this is absolutely what it must look like kind of guidance. So, um, we, we basically were again, free to sort of creatively make that place feel like a real environment and you know i drew on on you know looking at at like north american um uh, smoke houses like uh like native uh, smoke houses and that kind of thing and and uh community lodges and and shipbuilding techniques that people would have used in you know the 17 and 1800s for lashing and and we did a lot of you know built the the model with a lot of uh natural materials we steamed willow branches using jigs that were all bent to specific radiuses so we could create curved ceilings and then lash them together with you know with with shipbuilding knots and and it was just it was a lot of fun because there were all these little problems to solve in making this this building and plus also thinking about how is this going to be used it's going to be used in a way it's never been used before at least by me so it was making sure when we're designing the model that it is going to be uh visual effects friendly so it can be pulled apart and scanned and go through photogrammetry in different layers knowing that ultimately when it's on screen there's going to be depth to it and but if we build it as this sort of finished thing you're going to be occluding things when you're scanning so you got to have things that you can pull apart scan them as individual parts and then put them in the digital pipeline and lay them back in again Um, and then of course when it's when you see it being used i had gone down to set up the miniature that we built for the uh, for the common house um, and prior to that my meetings had been in in the production office in the in the uh, marina but this is my first time going to the stage 
And so, you know, you're walking through and here are all these things being built. And, you know, in retrospect, I know what they all were. But at the time, I'm like, wow, that's a very cool thing. I have no idea what it's going to be. Um, so we, we set up the miniature, got it ready for scanning and photogrammetry. And then I went to find um, the production supervisor to show him what we were what we had done. Um, and so I got escorted over to the main stage where the volume was. And I had seen that one little bit of footage looking over the Mandalorian's shoulder at a window. But I'd seen that on a monitor. It was like a 60-inch monitor. I'd seen that and I went, wow, this is really cool. And then I walked onto the stage. And my point of view when I walked onto the stage happened to be very similar to what the camera's point of view was. So I was having sort of the ideal first impression of the volume. And it was that opening shot where episode one, season one, the Mandalorians walking down this boardwalk on this on this icy expanse. Um, and he's gonna, you know, get his first bounty in the show. And this is the very first thing I see. And it's it's similar to that, but they're still figuring out what the shot is. So at this time, it's actually not a frozen expanse. It's it's big crashing waves and open ocean. But what I'm seeing is sort of through this opening that's sort of curtained off around the volume. So I'm not seeing the full expanse of the volume, but I'm probably seeing like 50 or so feet of the width of it. And I'm seeing floor to ceiling. But I'm, because I'm just kind of looking ahead and through blackout curtains on either side of it, it's almost like I'm seeing a 16 by nine frame. And I'm seeing it from the camera's position because I'm standing right behind the dolly track and I'm about, I guess, 60 feet or so from the screen and the Mandalorian is about 30 feet from me. And it's like I'm looking into another world. It was, <laughs> it was perfect. You know, the clouds are rolling through. There's a guy with a bucket of snow like off camera that I don't really see throwing it into a fan and snow is blowing through the shot and and the wind machine's going and he's walking towards the screen. And to me, it literally looked like I was looking out a window into another world. The effect was was so flawless to my naked eye hmm. on stage seeing that for the first time. I was stunned and I I absolutely knew that that this technology was going to change everything. The way that they were using it was going to change everything. Because Number one, they had created this this in-camera world that that was, you know, lighting their subject and reflecting on their subject and looked to again to my naked eye, not through any visual effects tricks, not through a you know a small monitor. To me looking at it in the real world, it looked perfect and real. And and then they changed the cloud formations a little bit and kind of rewound it. And you know, having and then I saw, you know, that ability to to change on the fly what they were doing. And then they repositioned the camera. And again, seeing all that sort of information changing on the fly, where everything I was seeing on screen was relating back to the exact position of the lens. And they were able to, in real time, shift exactly where they wanted all of this information to be on the screen. So um, it essentially opened the door to using miniatures a lot more because using photogrammetry and 3D scanning captures all that that fabulous detail and effort that you put into making that miniature and gets it on screen in a way that preserves that detail where you know sometimes when you're shooting things that fidelity gets lost because you can't hold the depth of field or you can't dump enough light on it without melting the model to get the depth of field <laughs> that you want to. Um, 
So yeah, getting into 3D scanning and photogrammetry really opened up the door for us. We did a lot of that. Um, well, we did a lot of that on Marwin, of course. Um, we've done it on our latest uh, project with Bob Zemeckis as well, where we're doing a lot of, of building physical assets to become digital assets um, because it just, it gives Bob the, the realism that he's after, that he doesn't necessarily have to struggle to get. You know, it's just, it's there, it's in camera because it's a physical, real thing. Yeah, and I think you and I have talked about uh, Bob a lot in the, in the sense that he's maybe an underappreciated um, father of virtual production. Yeah, Bob Zemeckis and I um, go back not that far. 2017, the first time was the first time I worked with him, um, but it was it was a really great experience working with with Bob and his team. He's got a really wonderful team of um, very visual effects savvy people around him as well. Bob himself is is incredibly visual effects savvy, but his team are great at coming up with innovative ways to do things, and they are also of the mind of of you know it's not this one tool that solves it. It's whatever tool is the best tool in the box. And so they're always looking for, um, you know, the best way to give Bob exactly what he wants on screen. And, and he's pushing the envelope all the time. Um, and on the, on the latest movie, um, they just wrapped uh, production on Pinocchio in London the other day. I saw on his Instagram post, he's like wrapped. And, you know, there's a picture of his shoe because he does that. Um, so they've just wrapped in London and it was, another one of those sort of uh, experiences working with him where it's just amazing to see someone embrace technology the way that he does and and push it and even in simple ways where where I'm looking at him going well of course this makes sense now that I'm seeing it but you know why didn't I think of that before when when he's building sets or when he's planning on building sets um, you walk into the the office at image movers and he's got a couple of you know 70 inch screens on the walls um, around him in the front lobby and he's got his you know little virtual camera dongle and he's moving it around and he's he's looking at low-res renders of sets that they intend to build in London and as he's looking around and moving the camera he's he's visualizing that world as it will be as a full-size physical set but he's looking at it in the digital world and he's able to actually look at it and go yeah okay this is where we're going to put the camera and you know how many steps does he have to go through here how much dialogue do we have to do here okay so here's how big that set's going to be and they're making all these adjustments in the virtual world with him holding the camera and him getting a feel for where everything's going to be before a single board is cut or a single nail is driven he's mapped it all out so it's not just how am i going to you know make this this cool looking visual effects digital world he's using it for how am i going to build this set and mm -hmm. where am I going to put the camera and where are we going to put the lighting? He's doing all that using virtual production as well. Right, which makes it incredibly more efficient because everybody can be on the same page. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, again, it's one of those things as soon as you see it, you go, well, of course that's how it should be done. That makes total sense. Why isn't everybody doing that? You know, um, And it, it just absolutely makes sense. It's just taking the idea of having somebody model it for you and show it to you on a computer screen just to the next step of like, okay, we've taken it off the computer screen, we put it in a virtual space, and now you can look around this virtual environment before we build it. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. So uh, let's say there is a person out there listening right now that wants 
to be like you, wants to have a career like you, what would you um, suggest for them? Like where would they get started? Ooh, wow. Um, That's interesting. I don't know if I would choose the career for me that I had. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, there are definitely dry spells for people doing practical visual effects work. You know, I went through periods where I didn't think I'd be doing visual effects miniatures again. Um, And, you know, that's that's kind of a tough time to go through. Um, The thing is, I never went to school for film work or visual effects or building miniatures. Literally everything that I've learned, I've learned hands-on or been fortunate enough to have someone impart a little bit of knowledge to me that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten. Um, So, you know, I can't say, oh, well, go to this film school or take this engineering course because I never did any of that stuff. I, I studied architectural design and that kind of keyed me or cued me up for doing, for figuring out engineering, but I honestly, I have no idea how I got here. (laughs) It's been fun. I love what I do. Um, I think that one thing that definitely set me on the path was when I was young, um, I grew up very isolated. Physically, like by geography, I grew up very isolated. And so I had nothing to entertain myself but my imagination. And so it was me sort of inside my head and looking at books and and sort of building from scratch and teaching myself um, how to create. I think the reason that I am where I am is because I can look at things and see the solution. Um, well, and I think you, you also answered it kind of earlier in the sense that, yeah, you can do it now and you can see those solutions, but what you first did was you saw the thing you wanted to do and you quit your job and you went and worked for free. Well, that's true. Yeah, and I mean, I there was that's... that. But I would, I mean, that's the thing. As a company <laughs> owner now, like I, I, not routinely, but often enough, I get people saying, hey, you know, I'd love to come work for you and be an intern and, you know, come work for free. And I would never do that personally. Like I would never hire somebody and work for free. Number one, it's a huge liability to the sure. company. If you're going to work in my shop, then you've got to be on payroll and you've got to be covered by workers' compensation. You have to have all that stuff in place. Um, but yeah, that attitude of this is what I want to do and I'm going to throw myself into it. Yeah, absolutely. That made a difference early on. I, there were a lot of times when I had friends saying like, you should just do something else. Like this is, this is not going to work out. You should quit. Like in the early days, like you're not going to, you know, there's not enough work in, in Canada for this kind of thing. You're not going to make it in this because it's just not there. Um, and I didn't quit. Like I just, I knew this is what I wanted to do and I stayed with it. Yep. And as they say, you know, if you love it, chase it. Yeah. And that's it. I love what I do. I, we used to play that sort of game when we were younger. Like, what would you do if you won the lottery? And, you know, everybody would have these answers of the, the job they'd actually be doing. You know, oh, I'd quit this job and I'd do this thing over here or I'd do that. And it's like, I would do exactly what I'm doing. Just, I'd probably have a bigger space and better toys. But <laughs> I would be doing exactly what I'm doing right now because I love what I'm doing. I love the people that I get to work with and the creative freedom to do what I'm doing right now, to have people who, I remember like the last drive-in movie I went to was Back to the Future. <laughs> and, I'm, and, and now, you know, Bob Zemeckis is like, hey, would, you know, what do you think? How should we do this? <laughs> That's an amazing place to come from, from, from you know, the, the woods of Northern Ontario to that. 
I have to remind myself how lucky I am to have that opportunity. That's another episode of The Call Sheet in the Books. I'm your host, AJ Wedding. You can follow me on Instagram at thatdirectoraj or join our Facebook page, The Call Sheet, for updates on the show. See you next time.